0: Romans 16, we observed last weekend, last Lord's Day, verses 1 through 16 of this closing chapter from this uh, really amazing letter. This week, we'll consider the second bank of verses, 17 to 23. Careful students will notice that a lot of your Bibles do not have a verse 24. Anybody notice that before, just now? I told you to be reading this. Like, for weeks now I've been saying, oh man, observant students, observant students, you are. Yeah, some manuscripts have uh, an additional little phrase in there uh, about the the gospel, uh, greets you in the gospel of Christ. Some of your Bibles may have verse 24 and then many others won't. It's an interesting little manuscriptal note Let's pick it up in verse 17 this morning. I appeal to you, brothers, it's a strong beginning, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace, verse 20, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pause there. Father, thank you again for your word and for the joy and the privilege of assembling together on this, the Lord's day. We have been called out from our homes and from our normal course of life, from the normal daily routines, for a special time, to give to you an offering of praise, to confess to you our brokenness and sinfulness in a a special and unique corporate environment, and to be equipped for the work of ministry to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ with us when we leave this place. And so, Lord, may those things be accomplished today. May you receive our offering of praise. May you equip us through the teaching of your word. And Lord, may our hearts be soft and be softened by the mysterious power of your word, exposited to pierce into the inner workings of our world, to reveal to us our unknown sinful habits, to convict us to confess and take action of our known sinful habits, to remind us of our selfishness and our laziness, to stir in us a urgency to share the gospel, we confess to you, Lord, in the areas and the ways which we are tripped up by this unredeemed flesh. May you hear our honesty and may you provoke us to it. For nothing goes unseen by your eye. And so let us just be brutally honest with you in our times of momentary and spontaneous confession and prayer throughout the our morning together. For Christ's sake and in his name, we pray all these things, amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's heart for people with verses one through 16. We noticed how he obviously loves people He names people by name. He greets them. He extends, as it were, through his pen, a warm, holy embrace of people. What we see in Paul in verses 1 through 16 is not the typical detached, high-minded theologian that we might think of when we think of the apostle and his challenging words. We don't see a cold though intelligent genius, we see a kind pastor who knows people, who loves people, who works with people, and who is concerned for people. It's refreshing, Uh, especially in our world where it seems that you might get one or the other from a pastor or from a teacher. You might get one who is really sharp, seemingly really bright, but terribly cold. Or you might get one who is really nice and loves people and knows everybody's names and favorite hobbies, but then they get up behind the the word and it's a little bit weak sauce, you know what I'm saying? It's nice to hear from Paul that no such extremes need to exist in the role of the pastor and certainly don't exist in the heart of the apostle, the one for whom we're looking to imitate as he imitates Christ, right? First Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11.1. And so I'm grateful for Paul's greetings and his heart for people exposed in those opening 16 verses. We look this week at an extension of that love for people as we see his heart for protection, it's hard for protection. If you love people, you'll protect them. It's why, uh, it's why I, I carry all these muscles around everywhere. It's to protect my children, and my wife. It's why my master bedroom closet is laden with lead and gunpowder encased. No, if you love people, you'll want to protect them. And that protection comes in the form of a warning in these verses that we just read. These verses are not uh, alone in the New Testament in warning against false teaching creeping up within the ranks of the church. The New Testament is replete with warnings about this and how we are to deal with it. Church history, sadly, is also replete with examples of false teaching creeping into the church, the harm it causes, and then how brave men and women of the faith responded to it biblically according to Paul's instructions. We'll consider a few examples this morning, but our consideration of this subject will be far from exhaustive. In fact, at a recent meeting, the elders and I decided that it would be a prudent exercise for Hillcrest to spend some time in the book of Jude on Sunday mornings after we conclude Paul's letter to the Romans. The reason is clear. Jude is the most exhaustive warning about false teaching invading the church, and those instructions and warnings in Jude are eerily eerily similar to exactly what we're seeing happen in the Christian church in America today. Combating false teaching that is masquerading as the truth within the ranks of American Christendom is perhaps the greatest challenge the church faces today. And so uh, I think the, the time is right and the elders agree. Uh, for us to spend a few moments carefully thinking this through. And so we'll do that uh, in a few weeks when we get to Jude. This morning, we're going to focus our attention, if you will, almost like as an introductory sermon to the upcoming study through Jude. There is so much more that I want to say that I won't. Um, Just know that there is much more to say about it but we'll stick closely to Paul's warning right here found in these verses and reserve some of the larger conversation for later. Now, I said the New Testament is replete with examples of warnings about false teaching. I want to point your attention to just a few examples just to make sure we understand the pervasive nature of these types of warnings. Galatians one, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. (laughs) But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, meaning the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Seems that Joseph Smith and the Mormon church never read Galatians chapter one. 2 Corinthians 11, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough he's 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 astonished you 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 tolerate this for such men are false prophets excuse me false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and no wonder for even satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds. Second Peter 2, But false prophets also arose among the people, speaking historically of ancient Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." We could go on into Acts 20, Matthew 24, 1 Timothy 1, and so on. But I think you get the point. These warnings are present, and the more you go looking for them, the more shocked I think you will be to find how often they come up in the letters of the New Testament or in the teaching of Jesus himself teaching and teachers that run contrary to the faithful message of the person and work of jesus christ were and are rampant here in the first century and now in the 21st the temptation for someone in my position is to make a list of sound teachers that you should ingest and a list of ones to avoid and while there's a time and place for that paul does so in second timothy 2 naming names most often, Paul and the other apostles speak to the effect and substance of false teachers. That way, you can identify any of them. So, rather than make a list for you, Paul seeks to arm the church with the tools to identify false teachers, recognizing that, most critically, they arise from within the ranks of Christendom rather than coming, as it were, an invading army. So, five things to consider when you encounter a false teacher, three points of application. Ready? Pens at the ready? (laughs) Number one, from the words of Jesus, you shall know them by their fruit. Yeah. You shall know them by their fruit. Look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, you will know them by their fruit. Divisions and obstacles, contrary to what has already been taught through the apostles. Jesus in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Friends, listen. They sound like you. They talk like you. They look like you but you are prey to them. I can't think of a more ominous warning, not from the mouth of a preacher, not from a fantastic commentary, but from the words of the divine Jesus himself. An ominous warning, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous Wolves, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. There is a lot of hesitation in the church today to just be nice we don't want to call people out for what they are. We don't want to speak the truth boldly, even, even with grief, because we're too concerned with being nice to heretics. That's got to stop, okay? Um, there's, a, there's a balance in there somewhere. I won't claim to always find it. My wife will tell you I definitely don't always find it. I'm a, I'm a oftentimes a, a fiery... Still, very young and unseasoned minister, and you are <sighs> patient. You have to be because you're stuck with me, at least for now. Um, there is a, a temptation and a tendency to say, Well, we don't want to judge and we don't really know someone's heart, but Jesus just said, You'll know the wolves from the sheep by the fruit of of their mouths and their lives. We don't want to be cruel. We don't want to be unnecessarily confrontational, but truth divides. I mean, there is a big difference between the charging city bus is made of marshmallows and the charging city bus is made of metal when it impacts your flesh at 60 miles an hour, right? the truth of the substance of that danger matters and so that's the warning from jesus looks like you talks like you sounds like you but in fact you are prey to them beware the first characteristic of a false teacher is they bring division again verse 18 oh excuse me verse 17 Watch out for those who cause divisions. That's the first fruit. Their presence and ideas divide the church instead of unifying her. So the first fruit is not so much an alarming and obvious heresy. I have a different idea. Jesus was a giraffe. It's not that obvious. It's, it's the first fruit is just strife. Just, man, this person, they just, there's always problems, it seems like every time they talk somewhere or serve somewhere or get, it just, every, it just, you know? Divisions. Now I want to read an excerpt from you from James Montgomery Boyce because we have encountered this and had to deal with it at Hillcrest in the last seven years. And it's uncanny how spot on this description is written by this pastor. And again, I want to read it to you so that you know that I didn't write it myself and yet it's strikingly uh, precise to the types of things that our leadership has had to deal with a few times uh, in the last, again, seven years. Quote, often these people who show up, excuse me, often these are people who show up in a congregation suddenly, usually from another church, where they have also caused trouble, though they give no indication of that when they come. They are knowledgeable They usually have considerable abilities. They are leaders in the sense that they have enthusiasm and get people to follow them easily. Generally, they are used to teaching and they want to fill this role in their new church. Unfortunately, although the Bible warns us to make full proof of those who want to be teachers, people like this are usually warmly welcomed and quickly put to work because most churches need people who actually want to serve. Friends, names and faces flashing through my mind as I read that this week. I thought, wow, this guy, was he like doing a hidden camera in my office? Yeah, it's exactly what it looks like. Division, division. The second fruit is obstacles. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles specifically contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. Obstacles, the Greek word is scandalon, from which we get the English term scandal. This is what what the Pharisees of Jesus' day were doing and why he spoke so harshly against them. The Pharisees imposed all kinds of extreme, extra-biblical requirements on their disciples, quote, teaching as doctrine the traditions of men, end quote, Jesus said. This is what the Mormon church does with a false gospel derived from an angel. This is what the Catholic church does when they require participation in various rites in addition to grace to be saved. Anything that detracts from the exclusivity of salvation by grace through faith alone is an obstacle. It is a scandalous impediment to the cross. When you hear something that rings of Grace and, that's when your ears should sort of take notice. Beware, you're likely dealing with a false teaching derived from a false teacher. Well, the instruction then comes really quite simply. Look at that at the end end of verse 17. Avoid them. Avoid them. What do you mean, like stop taking their call? Yeah. You mean like don't go out to dinner with them? Yeah. Yeah. When people are trying to add to grace for salvation and spreading that actively, there is a measure of you might correct a brother who is out of step. Paul talks about that in Galatians. And if you do, if they receive your words of correction and you, and you correct their error, then praise the Lord. But what Paul's talking about here is someone who is doing this pervasively resisting any form of correction. They cannot be corrected. They are the teacher. Avoid them. Avoid them. And, and then John reinforces this in his letter, Second John. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. What's that? Love. Love each other. Love by avoiding people. No. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This was the first century Gnostic heresy that Jesus was half man, half ghost. He didn't really die because he wasn't really fully man, so he couldn't have really resurrected from the dead because he wasn't really fully man. He didn't really come in the flesh. This was the Gnostic heresy that was so pervasive in the early church. had to be challenged by John. People have said this. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It can't be, Jesus calls them wolves. John says they don't have, meaning they do not possess God the way that the Christian does as a gift. And Paul says, avoid these people. And too often in the church we say, but... Nah, yeah, let's, let's not be unkind, right? There's a balance in there somewhere. Again, I won't go on that tirade again because I can feel myself welling up with all kinds of George whitfield style you know, fervor. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I don't want to be bombastic, and I promised a lot of people that I wouldn't be. I I don't know how much clearer it could possibly be. When it is obvious and unclear, by by the fruit of their own mouths and the way of their own lives, we do not need to fall short of saying that's a, false teacher, have nothing to do with them. We don't need to stop short of that. There's no need. We are given permission by the scriptures. Well, that's the first thing when encountering a false teacher. Number one, you will know them by their fruit. Number two, here lies their true motivation. Here lies their true motivation. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. Such persons do not serve the Lord, they serve their own appetites. No one can truly know the heart motivations of another person. Yet certain observable facts betray the professed innocence of one's motives. Philippians 3, for many of whom I have often Told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Minds set on earthly things. Their appetites and their luxuries, Pope Leo X famously at a Good Friday gathering in the Vatican lifted a glass of wine saying, how well we know what a profitable superstition this fable of Christ has been for us. Sheep, wolf in sheep's clothing. Paul says, they'll rise from within your ranks. And and in the 16th century, they're sitting in the highest seats. How terrifying. No wonder the Reformation was so necessary John MacArthur summarizes the presence of these teachers in the church this way. No matter how seemingly sincere and caring false teachers or preachers may appear to be, they are never genuinely concerned for the cause of Christ or for his church. They are often driven by self-interest and self-gratification, sometimes for fame, sometimes for power over their followers, always for financial gain, and frequently for all of those reasons. Many of them enjoy pretentious and luxurious lifestyles and sexual immorality is the rule more than the exception. So church, when a supposedly Christian pastor lives in shocking luxury, when he is morbidly obese from a lifetime of fine dining and rich delicacies, when he speaks with passion but is later exposed as a secret adulterer, when he spews half-truths about other Christians to persuade the masses to his side, when his words sound Christian but are oozing with pompousness, ego, and pride, you are not dealing with the faithful but with a wolf in sheep's clothing. I was recently reminded at a pastor's conference that, that there are many of these headline-catching flashy teachers masquerading within the ranks of American Christendom. But also, there are just as many, if not many, many more, faithful local pastors serving their church families, living quiet and simple lives, not earning front page coverage, not giving interviews, not making headlines because simple, faithful ministry in the church of Jesus Christ often goes without recognition by men. In summary, Dr. York said this way, uh, simple faithfulness does not make headlines. But we are promised a greater reward to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And for me as a pastor, and I hope for you as a minister of the gospel, as a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you will aim for and hope for the same. So that's number two. That's their true motivation is themselves. You will know them by their fruit. Thirdly, when dealing with false teachers, see through the facade by their methods. See through the facade by their methods. Again, verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, their methods, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Smooth talk and flattery. Cloaked language. It sounds as smooth as honey and it is offered with a big toothy whitened smile but its end is bitterness this is the method of the false teacher the key friends is to recognize that false teachers do not announce themselves as such They thrive in the vagaries of Christian liberty, quote-unquote, alternative interpretations, an emphasis on open-mindedness, emotions, and even using the language of the supernatural movements of the spirit. One example, Robert Tilton built a television empire that at its peak brought over $65 million a year in donations. How so? By promising healing to anyone who would covenant with him to send in a large financial gift. He claimed, quote, God showed me a vision that almost took my breath away. I was sucked into the Spirit, and I found myself standing in the very presence of Almighty God. He said these words to me, exactly these words. And then he went on to tell people to send their money and he'll pray for them and they'll be healed. 65 mil a year. He was exposed when ABC sent in like an investigative reporting team and they discovered all these donations flooding in over the mail and teams of people shredding the envelopes, pulling out the cash, putting out the checks over here and throwing the prayer requests into the trash can. They found garbage bags full of, in the dumpsters of unopened, unread letters, just the cash hastily removed and the letters wadded up and thrown out. I mean, one warning should have been, he found himself standing in the presence of God. There are many encounters with God by prophets. And you know where they all find themselves? When they find themselves in the presence of God, where are they? On their face, man. (laughs) Yeah, You're not standing. Get out of town. Sheesh. In Proverbs, the adulterous woman uses smooth speech to entice her prey. In Colossians, Paul warns about being deceived by, quote, fine-sounding arguments. In Psalms, David prays concerning his enemies, saying, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave, but they flatter with the tongue. See through the facade by their methods. It's often appealing, it often sounds nice. As Paul said in the last days, there will be people who who do not want to hear sound teaching. They will accumulate for themselves teachers that tickle the ear. Beware, friends. Number four, naivety of their danger is not an option. Naivete or naivete of their danger is not an option. Look at verse 19. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Wise to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. Yet, interestingly, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. These are opposing statements, aren't they? Paul says, Be wise to what is good, but innocent, almost like ignorant of evil. Jesus says, Be as wise as the cunning serpent, just be yourselves innocent as doves. These things seem to contradict, do they not? What Paul says is true when he writes whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fill your mind. Be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil. And so do these instructions contradict They are, as I have heard uh, one pastor say, they are a tension to manage, not a problem to solve. A tension to manage, not a problem to solve. We cannot be naive to the presence of false teachers masquerading as the genuine article. Otherwise, the New Testament would not be so full of warnings about them. Naivety about their danger is not an option. But... We should not buy their books. We should not listen to their sermons. We should not attend their meetings. As a teaching elder, I'm required to identify and address unsound doctrine, to refute it, and to warn you about it. And so the question is not whether whether this is good or bad, or whether this, this should be listened to or not listened to. The question is just simply, is this teaching sound? And is the source sound? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, then he's qualified to be an overseer, a teacher in God's house. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Friends, that is a gauntlet of expectations for the source of those who would speak into your souls by teaching. You should run every one of them through it, your elders included, and any other book you might wanna pick up or sermon you might wanna listen to or fancy dressed pastor you come across on the television or the YouTubes, okay? Does he meet these qualifications? If not, avoid him. When you love people as much as Paul loved the Romans, you protect them. And so a Sunday like this one is necessary for a healthy and whole body of believers. Well, the last point when approaching a false teacher is number five, be aware but not afraid. Be aware but not afraid. That's why I love this this turn in verse 20. Your obedience is known to all, right? Verse 19, I rejoice over you, but be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. We don't need to know the debauchery of the world in order to reach them with the gospel. We need to know the gospel itself. And then finally, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And it, when it turns for me, when it turns to this this note of victory, I, it, it brings me out of of my paranoia and my anger and my you know right like I'm gonna find these guys, I'm gonna expose them you know and it reminds me you know like Jesus is Jesus won, Jesus already won, right? Satan's end is settled. One of the remarkable things about Christians is that we're able to pass, you know, seemingly seamlessly from what people regard as merely human activity into what is spiritual, right? For example, you're gathered around with some friends, everyone's talking, having a good time, you're about to sit down and eat dinner, and then suddenly you stop and you pray, you thank God for the food, for the chance to be together, ask him to bless the meal, and and in my, in my house, that we would bless the Lord as we enjoy his good gifts to us. We go from something that's very human and suddenly we're transported and doing something very spiritual. It's a really remarkable, unique trait of the Christian. I was recently visiting Carolyn, my grandmother-in-law, in the hospital with some other family members and, uh, you know, she, she fell, she scraped her leg up, and, you know, when you get older, a, a fall is a big deal, right? Um, and, um, and there was, you know, infection, and there was, a, there was a major problem, and so we were visiting with her, and we grieved with her over the latest ailment. We discussed, you know, the medicinal plans and path going forward for her recovery as laid out by the doctors. And then we did something weird. We held hands, we closed our eyes, and we spoke requests of healing and comfort into the air. After that, a spontaneous chorus of an old song broke out. Tears of comfort and joy were shed. What a weird thing to do. Unless there's a God in heaven who cares for us who grieves with us, who comforts us in our sadness with a comfort that we can then extend to others, who hears our prayers and our praises, unless there is a God in heaven who is sovereignly overseeing all of our moments, light and dark, joyful and sad, healthy and infirmed. Well, a similarly strange moment suddenly occurs in Paul's warning about false teachers. It's almost like he he directs our minds upward, right? Beware of false teachers. This is what they do. This is the fruit of their ministry, their teaching, their effect and influence. This is how they sound. This is how they operate. Be wise, Be discerning. Look out. Also, look up. (laughs) Right? You see the shift? Is it just me? Am I the only one who sees this shift and is almost to a degree (gasps) relieved to be reminded? Paul draws our minds and attentions off the brokenness of humanity, even the invasive brokenness in the church of false teachers, and he pulls us to the victory of the cross of Christ. There where precious divine blood was spilled to satisfy God's righteous anger with our sin and sinfulness, to make a way for broken sinners like me and you to be at peace with him. And if that were all that was accomplished at the cross, that would be enough, or so we might think. But one problem remains. Even if we're forgiven our sin, we still die. And so on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, declaring victory over death itself to give to us a tangible hope that to pass from this life to the next is but a joyful graduation if our hope is in Christ as our Lord and Savior and suddenly the threat of false teachers is put into proper perspective, right? It's still very real. It requires our attention, but we're reminded of the victory that is already ours in Christ. It's interesting, Paul says that Satan will be crushed under your feet, isn't it? I mean, I could have very easily just moved right past that if he had said, "The God of Peace will soon crush Satan under Jesus' feet," right? Because that's the that's the end of time prediction. Satan will be judged. He will be stomped, as it were, cast into the lake of fire that was created for him and his minions. But he says that he'll crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as if we are to be reminded that Jesus is the new and better Adam. And that as we identified in Adam in the fall and are born into our sin, we identify with Jesus in his victory over sin. That just as Jesus was laid down in the waters of baptism, we identify with him in those moments. We die to ourselves spiritually, we live for a moment under the symbolic waters of God's judgment, and we are resurrected with Christ. And in all of those moments we are identifying with Jesus and his accomplishments on our behalf. We don't accomplish them, he accomplishes them and he gives them to us as if we had. And along with all of that hope, also comes this notion that just as Jesus stomped the head of the serpent into the ground, so too you will stomp and trample underfoot your mortal enemy, the one who seeks to steal your children away from you and break your marriage in two, right? Right? The the Satan who seeks to rob you of joy and of peace. The Satan who causes you anxiety and grief and fear and pain and who tempts you and tempts you and tempts you again and again even as you attempt and seek and long to walk righteously before the Lord. I'm sick of him. Aren't you? So Paul says, don't worry, you'll get to stomp his face in a while. It's good. Three quick points of application. We're out of time, so it really is, I promise, quick. Paul has no sympathy, R. Kent Hughes says, with theological sleepiness. So we are not lulled into sleepiness. No, we're, we're, we're compelled to action. So the, the three basic points of application from this section are found there. Number one, watch out. Right, I appeal to you brothers, Watch out eyes open stay awake as jesus said make a mental note of those who espouse ideas that are biblically off base in order to recognize that which falls into this category we have to think biblically and as alistair Begg says you can't think biblically without reading your bible okay so read the bible think biblically identify false teachers watch out for them number two avoid them avoid them the language is very clear Watch out and avoid them. There is no room for pleasantries between Christians and heretics. Heresy is a purposeful twisting. It's not someone who is a little bit off and unsure and uneducated. It's a purposeful twisting, deceptively distorting the gospel. This is not someone who deserves hugs and kindness. Listen, the person who deserves your kindness is the one who is naive and impressionable who will be caught up in the web of that heretic's lies. They deserve your kindness. So exert your kindness toward them by spurning the heretical. And then the third is simply be wise. Watch out, avoid them, be wise. And you say, well, that sounds good, but I'm not wise. Ask for wisdom. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord who gives liberally. He gives it, ask for it, just ask for it in faith, believing that he'll give it to you. And then when the moment comes and you need to exercise that wisdom, suddenly you're saying things and making decisions. You're like, where did that that come from? That's not consistent with the last 25 years of my doofus life, you know? James 1, be wise. Friends, to be recruited into Christianity is to be drafted into a war against the forces of evil. If at your point of conversion you were told otherwise, I'm sorry. If you were told life would be rosy and sweet just because you come to Christ, think again, it will be peaceful. You can have peace in the worst of circumstances because your eternity is settled in Christ. And eternity itself with Jesus will be bliss. But until then, until the Lord calls us home, we are the next generation in a long line of Christians called upon to steward the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many faithful Christians have fought and died and worked their hands to the bone to guard the truth so that you could hear it today. Don't we don't we have an obligation to do the same for the next generation. So be wise. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And again, friends, if there's a fourth, it's simply that final point. It's to simply remember that the fate of the world doesn't rest on your shoulders. Jesus defeated sin and death at the cross of Calvary. The victory has been won. Satan is defeated. The truth of that fact is meant to spur us on in hopefulness as we contend, for the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the the time we get to spend examining its beauty and its wonder and its wisdom. Thank you that even on a morning where we find these, you know, almost alarming, alarming warnings and statistics or, or facts about the history of the church and men masquerading. Thank you that on... A morning like that, we are also reminded that the victory has been won and that we take part in your victory over sin and death. Well, Watch over us and keep us. Help us as we attempt to live this Christian life as an example of godliness to others, as an agent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.